Our text this morning is 1 Timothy 2, and we are asking the question, what do people need to know to be saved? In our text, 1 Timothy 2, Paul encourages us to pray for all men, and he says in verses 3 and following, This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We look at this phrase, God wants all men to be saved. It's a categorical statement. Let me ask this question. Are all men saved? Well, if you were a universalist who believed only in heaven and no hell, you would answer, yes, all men are saved or will be saved. But such a conclusion flies in the face of reality and in the face of the scriptures as well, which talk not only about people being saved and entering heaven's bliss, but also of people who are lost, who enter hell's torments. So how do we reconcile that? Only the most spiritually blind would assert that all people will be saved. Such of you make salvation a joke and the atoning work of Jesus a farce. If the Hitlers and the Mussolinis and the Stalins are just as saved as the Martin Luthers, the John Knoxes, the Dr. Lloyd-Joneses, and so on of our history, then repentance and faith in Jesus are not necessary, and the required holiness of God is heretical teaching. If all men are saved, what fear is there of judgment or punishment for sin? Why even have a Savior who came and died? Was Jesus shed blood a necessity? Or is it irrelevant? Now let us not be trapped, that is, deceived by our own wishful thinking. Any talk of salvation must begin and end with God's revelation of the subject as found in the Bible. God is not silent, though men are willfully deaf. Think of all the declarative statements in the Bible that make God a liar if all are saved. I can't give them all to you, but let me give you some. We read from Romans 2 and verse 5, But because of your stubbornness, writes Paul, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2 verse 5. Wrath, judgment, these have no place in a world where all are saved. Yet Paul talks of these things. Or again, the writer of Hebrews says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 27. Well, again, if all are saved, then God has no enemies. There is no judgment. There is no raging fire to come if all are saved. One other text, Luke 13, verse 28. Jesus says, There will be weeping. There will be gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Luke 13, verse 28. Now, according to the universalists, none are thrown out. All are in the kingdom of God, but Jesus taught otherwise. So obviously, to be a universalist, you would have to bury your head in the sand. You would have to set all reason aside. You would have to promote a sinfully absurd theory of salvation 
that opposes and denies the very God whose salvation is under discussion. Your God cannot be the God of the Bible if you're a universalist. And the salvation of which you speak is but a delusion of your own imagination. Hooray for Satan, but no, hooray for you. He has held you fast in his kingdom. Paul, speaking for the apostles, says, We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 2 through 4. So obviously, believers of the book and believers of reality must understand our text. God wants all men to be saved in some other definition than that of the universalists who's living in fantasy land. True, whatever God wants, God gets. And that's, they're pressing that, you see. The universalists are. God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, verse 10. God does say that, doesn't he? Job says, though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and, not, and come out unscathed? Job 9, verse 3 and 4. And that's just Job's way of saying, you know, God does what he wants. And who are you to try to thwart his will? Even proud and self-assertive King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and compelled to testify about God. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, says Nebuchadnezzar. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4, verse 35. We do not question God. God questions us. So, if God wants all men to be saved, but we know that not everyone is saved, how do we explain this in our text? Has God suddenly lost his power to save? How stupid is that? The problem is not with God, but with our understanding of what Paul is saying here. And the context of any given passage of Scripture must color the interpretation. Otherwise, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And the universalists have done this. They said, it says right there, God wants all men to be saved. That's it. He wants all men to be saved. Who has resisted his will? All men are going to be saved. Well, that's the most shoddy way to handle the scriptures that I know of. It's a form of self-deception. Okay, let's ask this question. Do we find any help in the context, in this passage of scripture, to help us discover what Paul meant by the word all when he says God wants all men to be saved. Well, look at verse 1. I urge then that requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. King James Version says for all men. The Greek word is a Greek word that means the whole of or more than one. So we know that Paul is talking about God's people praying for a plurality of people. You don't just pray for you, you pray for others. And he gets us thinking some of the others that we ought to be praying for. But the next phrase in the verse adds even more meaning to the word all. He goes on to say, for kings and all those in authority. Now he's using this word all a number of times here. 
that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. So now we have a charge that we're to pray for and intercede for all men, including specifically kings, but not only kings, but all those that are in authority. And we begin to understand that the word all within context does not mean every last person on the earth, but rather every kind of person on the earth, including but not restricted to those in authority. We are not, therefore, in considering another text by Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and verses through 29, where he writes, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. We are not, I say, we are not to conclude from this text that no person of wisdom no person of position, no person in authority is a candidate for salvation. Or not to conclude that. No, verse 26 says, 1 Corinthians 1, Brothers, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. True, not many. But some were saved. And so we are not to confine our prayers to only those we deem, we deem lowly and ill-informed. To do so would be to second-guess the decrees of God, which we studied the other week, and none of us are to do that. If we do that, we sin against God. We're to pray for all kinds of people that they might be saved. The high and mighty and the low and debased. Because the effectual prayer of righteous people accomplishes much. So in light of this, the all in the phrase, God wants all men to be saved, does not refer to every last person on earth, but rather all kinds of people. And guess what? This is precisely what we find in reality. In the Revelation, John declares what he saw. He says, Then I saw another angel fly in the midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. The gospel is proclaimed to all those classes. Revelation 14, verse 6. And the result of that proclamation is given in Revelation 7 and verse 9. Now here's the reality. We're looking into the future, grant you, Paul by, or John by inspiration has, has this insight, and here's what he, write, what he writes. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And so who are saved, who are part of this great host in heaven that prays Christ as the Lamb of God? They are from every nation, language, every tribe. Black people, yellow people, red people, white people in terms of their skin color, every ideology, every culture is represented there before the throne. Paul, speaking of the church, says this. Here, that is in the church, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, there is none of that. But, he goes on, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Colossians 3, verse 11, 12. Well, that's the church, folks. 
The church is this conglomerate of all kinds of people. And saved, brethren, consists of every kind of sinful person on the earth, every kind. None are exempt or excluded. All are within the grasp of God's saving grace. All are savable from God's viewpoint. Never forget it. Never count yourself or others sinners out. Never say that of yourself. Hope in God. He is willing and able to save completely, we studied the other week, those who come to God through Jesus. Hebrews 7, verse 25. That's what's meant by the all in this text. It's a universal appeal. Wow, how wonderful. All you sinners. <laughs> that's, all, that's me and everybody sitting here and everybody out there in TV land. All sinners. All kinds of sinners. Christ has come to save. Now, how are these people saved? Is God just mm, thunderbolt salvation? Person doesn't have anything to do with God, and then thunderbolts come. Suddenly they're Christians. Suddenly they're believers. Suddenly they're obedient. No, that's not how. It comes through a knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth saves. Now, not any truth, but the truth of the gospel. One plus one equals two. That's truth. That's not going to save you. It has to do with the truth of the gospel. Truth on these th various themes. And in this definition, the truth is not a proposition. It is a person. It is not any one principle taught in the book or a compilation of many principles, but the author of the book is the Savior. That's what we need to keep in mind. You can study theology and end up in hell. You can be a Calvinist and end up in hell's fires. You can be very religious and lost. Jesus made this exclusive claim. I am the way. I, he goes on. I am the truth and the life. No one comes before the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. So he's saying that Jesus Christ is the truth that saves. And short of him, your knowledge will kill you. Miss Christ and you miss life. In Jesus' prayer the night of his crucifixion, this is what he said. Now this is eternal life. He's praying to God the Father. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, verse it's the gospel truth that must be known in order for salvation to come. Now what ways does this knowledge of truth save? And I'm listing some subpoints you'll notice there in your bulletin. Firstly, this truth saves from apathy and indifference to spiritual things. Remember your days before the knowledge of Christ came to you? It's good to think back, folks. Remember those days. You lived life solely for the material and the carnal, if you're honest. So long as you had food in your belly and clothes on your back, you were content. And if by some great effort or good fortune you stockpiled some money in the bank so that you could buy some of the things for your family that were the desire of the heart, you considered the world to be treating you rather well. You had little time for religion and the things of God. Those things were okay for others, but not for you. You had better things to think about. You were not necessarily hostile to the gospel, but you just did not think it very important or very practical. You had all you needed in and of yourself. 
then somewhere or other, through a gospel track or the witness of a friend, you moved beyond your one and only known verse in the Bible. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You loved that verse because it seemed to lay aside all of your fears of death and hell. But then someone, someone pointed out to you verse 18 of that, just two verses lower in the text. And that verse says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. Oh good, that's so good news, right? But, uh oh, uh oh, there's a fly in the ointment. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Oh, ooh, ooh. Suddenly, suddenly, the God-loving, the world part of verse 16 no longer applied to you because verse 18 called for a response to God's Son, namely faith in Him. And further, it warned that lack of such belief meant that you were already in a state of condemnation. Oh yeah, judgment day was coming, but already you stood condemned for your unbelief. You glossed over that before. You never gave it a second thought. Oh, just, I like John 3.16. That God would actually hold a person accountable for not believing in Jesus was never in your thoughts. But now by God's Spirit, He impressed this truth to you and your indifference melted. Suddenly, suddenly, you were afraid. And rightly so. Your tranquility turned to unrest and literally, literally, you had trouble sleeping at night. You felt that you needed to get right with God and Jesus, Jesus was suddenly very, very important. Brethren, spiritual indifference flees when the total truth about Jesus begins to flood the soul. It's God's wake-up call. The truth wakes us up. Secondly, this truth of the gospel saves from false confidence. Picture now a person who, though giving little thought to the centrality of the truth that Jesus alone saves, was a person who did not ignore the subject of salvation altogether. That is, this person believed all along that there is a spiritual destiny to which all people are headed, so he or she may have believed in both heaven and hell. And what is more, he or she knew that God was such that the sinful behavior of their own lives would not be tolerated, would not be tolerated by a holy God. And so they felt the need to reform. <clears throat> I ought to do something about this. No one had to tell them this. They began to give up their most wicked sins as they saw them. They gave up their drunkenness and their immorality and their pornography and the gambling and such. Many leaves were turned over. Suddenly, church and the people of God seemed to be uh, the place to be. I mean, after all, they were good folks once you got to know them. And though no preacher actually taught it, such people believe that keeping the Ten Commandments is the way to be saved. Oh, in partaking of the communion service, the bread and the wine was viewed as, um, that's added insurance. Then one day, the preacher accidentally taught, accidentally taught, on Galatians 3, verse 11 and following. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because 
The righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Or again, again, the preacher alluded to James 2 verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet, and yet stumbles at just one point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. And you heard that. And you said, you mean I have to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly to be saved? So you protest. Well, that's ridiculous. No one, <laughs> no one is perfect, right? We live in an imperfect world. That can't be right. And just about that time of your protest, the gospel truth cuts in to your defense saying, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2, verse 10. And again, chapter 5, verse 9. Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And these people, maybe some of you, realize that your confidence was misplaced. You were trying to do better without thinking that you had to become perfect. But now you realize, again the scripture, the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Hebrews 7 verse 19. Oh, what's that better hope? You had finally come, the writer says, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made Perfect. Wow. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, 23 and 24. The truth of Jesus as Savior saves us from false confidences. Yeah. If you're going to be saved by the law, you have to be perfect in your obedience. And you ain't going to make it. I'm not going to make it. No one is going to make it. Christ is the one who made it and makes us perfect and dresses us in his perfect righteousness. So that's what God sees for those who believe and those who repent. That's the truth of the gospel. The law says, obey and live. The gospel says, unless you obey perfectly, you will not have eternal life. There's one person who obeyed perfectly. That's Christ. You need him and his work. Thirdly, the gospel truth of Jesus saves from despair. Have you ever been so helpless in your own thinking as to feel hopeless? Helpless and hopeless are twin sisters at times. The one supports the other. Hopelessness is the definition of despair. It is a man hanging at the end of his rope with a gaping precipice filled with demons, fire, and hideous monsters below with mouths wide open waiting for him to fall and to be consumed this is the person who has tried and tried and tried again and again and again. And they are tired of trying now. They're worn out from trying. They've traveled down every conceivable path they know, only to find a bolted iron door at the end, barring their entrance into God's eternal kingdom. They were once strong-willed and strong in resolve, but now they're feeble and they're weak. Nothing has worked. All has ended in despair. It's 
Solomon writing Ecclesiastes all over again. Everything is meaningless, meaningless. Might as well let go of the rope. Might as well fall to your fate. You can do no more. I mean, even if someone were to dangle a steel cable fastened to a winch and would shout, Take hold of the winch! Take hold of it! And I will winch you to safety! You would have no faith to believe it, nor the strength to do it, because you know in your heart that you need no more. You need more, rather, than a helping hand. That's a person that's in despair. That's a person that's come to an end of themselves, which is a good place. This is the person that's come to the end of their rope. And then the gospel truth of a vicarious Savior is preached. You hear of a Savior who does not ask for and does not want your help. He does not come to assist you, but to save you. He does not ask you to take hold of anything. Instead, He takes hold of you effectually draws you out of the pit of despair. And the fires of hell and the gaping mouth of the monsters below are satisfied. No, no more than satisfied. They are slain. Paul writes it this way, When you were dead in your sins. Now dead means helpless, right? Helpless, hopeless. When you were dead in your sins. And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them through his cross. Again, the work of Christ. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And here you learn that salvation is not what you have done or could do, but what Christ has done for you. You learn that God is not looking for your goodness, but He's looking for your badness. That He's not calling the righteous to Him, He's calling the unrighteous to Him. That His salvation is not for saints. It's for sinners. And hope begins to flood in because you know that your wicked heart is precisely the home in which God desires to take up residence. You see then that the gospel is indeed good news. That it is yours for the believing, not for the doing. And faith is not self-energized as we hear in our day. Well, you need to have faith in yourself a little bit. Now that's the problem. Faith in self, left to itself, dot lies dead as it always has been patting itself on the back, but no praise coming to God. Faith, true gospel faith, takes its hope in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And the truth of the gospel will destroy despair and bring you up out of that despondency and plant you on solid footing. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our rock, now that brings us then to the second part of the message, the kind of knowledge that saves. I've listed some things in your bulletin. Firstly, the kind of knowledge that saves is a convincing 
knowledge. You have to be convinced. There's a world of difference between what I will call book knowledge and saving knowledge. There are people who have a natural proclivity to study. That is to say, it doesn't much matter the subject. If there is an interest in it, they can read up on it and pretty well digest it and its main tenets. These bookworms are to be found in the spiritual realm as well. There are professors of religion in our most liberal and our most secular institutions and universities, and they teach theology, and they teach comparative religions, and they can delineate the ins, the outs of most religions, including Christianity. Let me illustrate. Whenever the History Channel does a documentary on some Bible theme, let's say Noah's flood or Israel's exodus from Egypt, here's what they do. They read the Bible text, they give lip service to its validity, and then they pack the dialogue with theologians and scientists who spend the next hour presenting all the alleged proof to discredit, let's say, the universality of Noah's flood. Well, the mountains are too high. Everest is 35,000 plus feet. You mean to tell me the water went over that big, tall mountain? You don't realize that the mountains weren't that tall then. For the catastrophe of the flood, resulted in an upheaval of the mountains. But that's the way they are reason. Let me ask, do they have knowledge of Noah's flood? Let me do that. The answer is no. The answer will always be no because they're not convinced of it. They approach the subject with preconceived biases against the miraculous power of God. They don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, you don't know it. You're not convinced. And so what I'm saying here is that Christ must become to you more than an academic Savior. You're, you are called upon in the gospel to believe that salvation is accomplished by Him alone on your behalf. You can't go, well, penance plus Christ equals payment for my sins. Really? Does God need help to forgive and cleanse you? Does he need your help? If salvation were possible through your obedience, as we have already seen this morning, then Jesus was a useless Savior. Did not need it. So saving knowledge is firstly a knowledge that is confident. You believe. Secondly, saving knowledge is experiential knowledge. When Philip was called by Christ to become his disciple, Philip went to Nathaniel and he said, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel said? Come and see, said Philip. John 1, verse 45 and 46. Now notice, Philip did not enter into some kind of dialogue with Nathaniel. He did not try to convince him of his findings. He knew how fruitless that would be. He knew that Nathaniel had to be convinced for himself. Come and see. We read on. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, 
I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, You believe? Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. John 1, 47 through 50. Now this fig tree obviously had to be some great distance away out of the realm of natural sight. So Nathaniel said, when did you see me? Oh, I saw you. Long before Philip ever came. That foresight, that ability to see, that miraculous sight, convinced Nathaniel who Jesus was. God and his salvation must be experienced for yourself. May I say it this way? No one can believe for you. No one. No one can convince you to forsake your stubbornness and your pride. The appeal of the gospel is always this. Taste, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 8. And until you taste for yourself, you will never know salvation. When you taste and see for yourself, no one will ever be able to convince you otherwise than that Jesus is truly the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. No one here who has tasted of God's salvation in Christ is willing to, to forsake Him for other things. They've come and found the pearl of great price. And then lastly, saving knowledge is always, listen, it's always and forever embedded in the truth of the gospel. Jesus spoke of the strange hold of sin and the emancipation from such slavery when he said these words. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, if you hold to it. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32. Just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed this prayer for his disciples. He's praying to God the Father and he's saying, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, verse 17. Truth, brethren, has a liberating effect. Lies, deception, cover-ups, minimizing evil or excusing it or ignoring it has an enslaving effect. Aren't you tired of the lies? Haven't you had enough of the dark secrets that haunt your soul and keep you awake at night? In Luke 11, verse 24 and following, Jesus is teaching, he says, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and it takes seven more spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition, that man is worse than the first. In this account, Jesus is talking about Satan as the strong man who protects his house, his investment, may I say. You and me, any sinner. He's not going to willingly relinquish you're mine. I'm keeping you. You're in my kingdom. But, the text says, someone stronger comes along. This someone stronger is Jesus. He comes along and he expels Satan, leaving the house swept clean and in order. And then, something awful happens. 
The one whom Christ has cleansed of his sin through repentance and faith lets his guard down, reverts to his to hiding his sin or glossing over it, ashamed that others might learn of it, so he begins to be secretive and hide it. Reliance upon the power of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ and the mercy of Christ kind of slips by the wayside. And the house that was swept clean and in order is polluted again by the same demonic lies and deceptions and denials that were there before. Except now they, things are compounded. Now the final state is worse. Paul writes it this way, see to it, see to it, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Colossians 2 verse 8. Peter warns about the pig going back to pig trough or the dog returning to its vomit. Satan and his world agree that the best way to handle sin is not to discuss it, certainly not to admit it. No matter if it is true, the fewer who know about it, the better. And so... What is that? It's binding lies and hurting lies and deadly lies all over again. Whereas the biblical answer is this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9. That's the truth that sets men free, not lies and deception and cover-up and hiding and all that. Paul writes it this way to the Galatians. He says, you were running a good race. That's the way he words it. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. He goes on, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Galatians 5, verse 7 and 8. Someone cut in. It was the Judaizers who cut in and said, you know, it's nice that you believe in Jesus. Pat you on the back for that, that's good. It's always good to believe in Jesus. Good to believe in God. But, you know, you have to believe in Jesus and you also have to be circumcised. You have to believe in Jesus and keep the Mosaic Law. You have to believe in Jesus and keep the Sabbath Day Regulation. You have to believe in Jesus and eat certain foods and abstain from certain other ones. It's Christ plus. That's what salvation is. And Paul says to these Galatian brethren, you know, who's ever been circumcised, if that's where you're putting your faith, you've been severed in Christ. A play on the operation of circumcision. Yeah, you've cut something right. You have cut yourself loose in Christ. It isn't Christ plus. It's Christ in Him alone. Saving knowledge adheres tenaciously to gospel truth. Not to all the sidelines, the little plug-ins that the world wants to add to Jesus. You can't add to perfection. As soon as you add to perfection, you've ruined perfection. God has a perfect Savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is salvation in no one else. Our Father, we pray this day that we who know you will rejoice in the fact that your truth sets us free. 
And if there's those here today who are not part of your family, I pray that today you would draw them to yourself. Help them to see it isn't Christ plus their own obedience. It isn't the law. It isn't the Ten Commandments that saves. It's not going to church, put money in the offering plate. It's not taking up communion or any of the things that the world would like to suggest, the religious world, mind you, would like to suggest is the way of salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And that truth attacks our confidences, our false confidences. It attacks our pride and arrogance. It attacks our self-confidence. And it places us squarely on the rock who is Jesus Christ the Lord. And everything else is sinking sand. It's quicksand. It'll swallow us up <clears throat> just as surely as anything else. And I pray that we'll see that. We need a solid footing, and that's in Christ. Your Son has come and done the work for all who will repent and believe. Lord, grant us that faith and grant us that repentance. May today be the day that Christmas is born in our hearts. That the Savior <coughs> who came and was born and took on humanity, that he might die the death of the cross. That Savior, not a baby anymore, but that God-man and his work would become part of us. We pity the world this day, Lord, whose idea of Christmas is a mountain full of presents, a table full of food, and good friends and laughter. May they understand that if they have all of those things, but do not have Jesus Christ as Savior, they lose. They lose. Jesus put it this way, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in so doing loses his own soul? God, make us wiser than that. Grant us the truth of the gospel. May we believe it and obey in Jesus' name.